0: The following resource is from LMPC.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lnpcorg give. A reading from Luke chapter 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him. My disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning. Let me echo Frank and welcome you in Christ's name. We are glad to have you with us this morning. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. And so if you're visiting with us, I'm really glad that you're here. Be delighted to meet you at the back door at the conclusion of the service. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. And so just by way of reminder of where we are in the Gospel of Luke, back in chapter 9, Luke told us that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He is preparing at this point in the Gospel to go uh, and have his final showdown with the religious and the Roman leaders. He is steadily making progress, making his way, Towards that event, and our passage begins with Luke telling us as he goes towards Jerusalem, there are great crowds following him, and we know from the last few chapters that many of these people are true disciples. Many of them are people who have experienced healing at Jesus's hands, or they've seen others experience it, and they they want to follow Jesus. But of course, as with any great stir, there are also people who are just there for the spectacle. Jesus makes clear that following him is not exactly the victory parade that those people want it to be. As he goes through our passage, he has warnings for them, and he lets the crowds know that to follow him is actually more like being those people who are condemned to die walking to their executions, Following Jesus in this life will often seem far more like a funeral procession than a victory parade, at least at first. Jesus tells the crowds that to follow him will cost them. It will cost us. Are you prepared to pay the cost to follow Jesus? You can see our outline there in your bulletin. Verses 25 through 27, we'll look at Jesus's clarification about discipleship, where he lets us know there is no discipleship without a cross. Then in verses 28 through 33, we see Jesus use two illustrations to make similar points, that there is no discipleship without cost. We must count the cost before we set out to following Jesus. Then finally, in verses 34 and 35, we see a somewhat cryptic Parable where we are given the implication of what he has said before that we are to count the cost, not just of following Jesus, but of not following him. That it is not possible, unless you were willing to do these things, it is not possible to be his disciple. And to not be his disciple is a terrible, terrible thing in the end. So that's our roadmap. That's how we'll try to navigate the text together before we set out. Let me pause and pray. We'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless our time together in God's word this morning. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is no vain word. It is no empty word. As Moses t- told your people, it is our very life. And you have made promises that when it goes out From you, it does not return to you void, but accomplishes every purpose that you have for it. And so we plead, Lord, would you have your way with us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear you? Would you give us hearts that long to know you and to follow you? Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Um, Well, some of you will know that I've been out for a few weeks. Uh, Our third child was born a month ago today, Shepard, our son. So he is a month old. He is, I've been joking with many of you, he is eating a lot and sleeping a little. And so we are happy and tired. But uh, while we are in the hospital, we are, as you have to do, waiting on the all clear from the hospital staff to go home, and there wasn't much to do, and so Mary and I flipped on the TV, and if you've stopped watching daytime television, uh, you'll be glad to know there's still nothing on really worth watching, but we flipped around and found uh, on HGTV a show that we had not seen before, and the title of the show is Help, I Wrecked My House. Help, I Wrecked My House, and the premise of the show, if you haven't seen it, is about people who are DIYers do-it-yourselfers. These people started renovating their house, but instead of calling in a professional, they tried to do it themselves. And halfway through the project, wires everywhere, chaos all around them, they realized their incompetence and called for help. And so the show's host is this general contractor who comes in and cleans up their mess, but she also usually spends a fair amount of, of time rubbing it in their face Just how foolish this was to start a major renovation project without the plans, without the expertise, without the resources to finish the job. It is foolish to take on that journey, to take on that project, when you don't know if you have the resources to finish In our passage, Jesus says that thoughtlessly trying to follow him is like that. Following him without taking into consideration what it is really going to cost is unwise. There can be no true discipleship without a cross. So we begin in verses 25 through 27 as Jesus responds to the crowds that are following him with this clarification. There's no discipleship without a cross. Verse 26 is pretty stark. I wondered how it hit you as it was read this morning. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate, it's a long list of people you gotta hate. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, some of those easier than others, right? But how do we square that? Hate my father and mother? What about the fifth commandment? I thought I was supposed to honor my father and mother. Hate my own life? Jesus, earlier in in the gospel, you said to love my neighbor as I love myself. How can I do that if I am called to hate even my own life? How do we square Jesus's teaching here with the rest of the teaching we know from him of, of the call to love these same people? What does Jesus mean? as he often does, Jesus is using a rhetorical device to make a point. Jesus's point is that following him is to be his disciples' first priority over everything else. Everything else comes second to Jesus, and his disciples are to find in him a love that they've never known, and they are to respond with a love that is so deep, so affectionate, so rock solid that everything else that they love in their life is a distant second. The love you have for your family, even for yourself is, a, is to pale in comparison to the love that you have for Jesus. Jesus says to follow him, we must put him over and above every other priority in our lives, even our own flesh and blood. If that grates on you, and and it does me, I can assure you it grated on the original audience even more, the crowds in this text even more. In the ancient Near East, Frank mentioned this this morning as we reintroduced the greeting time. Your family was everything. They still are in many Eastern cultures. Now, this is the South, so our families are important, but for them, it really was everything. And Jesus picks on that and says, no, I must be your everything. You must be prepared to lose even that to follow me. There is no discipleship without a cross. That's what Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's almost impossible to overstate how shameful a cross was to Jesus's original audience think about put yourself in a jewish person's mindset you you and your people have been conquered by an invading empire and that to enforce that submission anytime they need to execute someone they make them carry their crossbeam so that you can see anyone who goes against them this is what happens this is how submissive you end up being you will carry the instrument of your own death to the place of your death and there will be a message to everyone. You have been conquered. You have been defeated. You will obey. This is ultimately what Jesus will do. He will be forced to carry a Roman cross. And Jesus is saying following him will require that kind of submission, not to the Romans, but to him. We are so thoroughly submitted to Jesus that whatever he calls us to, even to like he went through, shame and humiliation, even death, that we will walk that road behind him. A couple of, I mean, this is hard, isn't it? A couple of thoughts of application. Is following Jesus the first priority of your life? Do you love him so much that even the good things in your life, good things he's given you, your spouse, your children, your calling, do you love him so much that your love for those things pales by comparison? As I was preparing this week and holding a newborn child, I found that a very difficult question to wrestle with. Can we hold these things before God with an open hand saying, Lord, these relationships, these gifts are yours. I want to love them and honor them in a way that loves and honors you, but I am willing to lose even them that I may not lose you, that I may have you. Are you able to say with the apostle Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Are we willing to die to things, even good things, that have become idolatrous things? Jesus calls us to a cross. There's a moment in the show Band of Brothers where a character Named Lieutenant Spears and another character named Private Blythe, they're having a conversation about the war. It's obviously set during World War II. and they're talking about what it means to be at war and to be afraid. And Private Blythe, in a, in a moment of transparency, confesses to Lieutenant Spears that on D-Day, when he landed, he went and found a ditch, and he hid instead of fighting. And Lieutenant Spears looks at him and asks him, do you know why you hid in that ditch? And Private Blythe, preparing for, you know, some kind of scathing response, tries to preempt it. He tries to just confess. He says, I was scared. I was scared. And Lieutenant Spears looks at him and he says, we are all scared. We are all scared you hid in that ditch because you think that there is still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept that you are already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you will be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Now those are stark words, wartime words for someone. And that is not exactly a parallel to what Jesus calls us to, but I think it is helpful to think about what Jesus is calling his disciples to, that there is a sense in which we are the walking dead. We are willing to die to all of the other things in our lives that tempt us to follow them and to choose them over the one good thing of following Jesus. We are to die to those things, and in so doing, really live. That's the payoff of all of this, that Jesus is actually inviting us to die that we might live. Where's he going? He's going to a cross where he will die, and then what will happen? He will be raised. Jesus calls us to death that we might live. He calls us to die to those things that we are so tempted to make into idols. In verses 28 through 23, Jesus begins to illustrate his point. There is no discipleship without cost. And he uses two different stories, two different images to help his disciples see that everyone must weigh the cost of following him. That following Jesus is not a venture to go into into lightly. In verses 28 through 30, he compares it to starting a construction project. He says, "'For which of you desiring to build a tower "'does not first sit down and count the cost?' whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Think back to help, I wrecked my house. You see people in the middle of those processes and when they're unable to finish, you think, man, why didn't you do the math? Jesus says to follow him and to not count the cost beforehand, to not be prepared for what it will cost And then to find yourself giving up is a similar, uh, you will find yourself in a similar situation. He adds an additional illustration in verses 31 and 32. Compares it to a king prepared to go out to war. He says a king would be a fool to go into a battle without a plan, without considering whether he can actually win or lose. Does he have the resources? Does he have the men? Does he have the weapons? And if not, then he should sue for peace. Peace. The payoff of these two illustrations is this, following Jesus will cost us. Are you prepared for that? Now, I need to make a distinction because I think some of you have been here long enough to think, man, I, they used to talk about grace around here. What happened to that? I thought salvation was free, and of course it is. You don't have to do anything. It's all of his grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Hallelujah, it is free. To come into the kingdom is free. But to follow him from there, to live as he calls you to live, to be a disciple, discipleship costs. And what does it cost? Well, as Jesus makes clear in verse 26, it it may cost you relationships. Perhaps you've come from a background like this. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have come out of Muslim backgrounds have been cut off by their families. They've had a mother or a father look at them and say, you are dead to me, never return. And though it was its own kind of death, they have said, Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus may cost you your children. Some of you may have had the experience of your children looking at you and saying, look, as long as you continue to hold these archaic beliefs I don't want anything to do with you. And you have felt that dagger. And you have said with trembling that Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus may cost you wealth. Jesus explicitly says that in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And it's tempting to spiritualize that all that he has, but literally what he's saying there, the Greek there is talking about possessions, your stuff. If you are not willing to hold everything that you have that you own with an open hand, you cannot be my disciple. So you, some of you may have put money away towards a dream, second home, significant inheritance, something to set aside for your kids, both good things, nothing wrong. And then the Lord laid it on your heart to give it towards the expansion of the kingdom instead. And though it meant saying farewell to a dream, you have said Jesus is worth it. Jesus says there is no discipleship without cost. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Let me put it another way. Has it cost you something to follow Jesus? As we have this day of prayer for the persecuted church, I think... It shouldn't shock you for me to say that if it has not cost you yet, it will. In some form or another. But he will be worth it. Jesus will be worth it. Because as we finish in verses 34 and 35, Jesus tells us the implication. And the payoff of all of this, I think, at least, is that we must count the eternal cost, not only of following Jesus, but of not following him. In verses 34 and 35, He has this cryptic parable about salt. You may have thought at first glance, why are we talking about salt again? What's the connection? Here's the connection. If you do not count the cost of following Jesus, you will not make it as a follower. You will run out of gas. A day will come when too much is asked of you and you will say, I'm out. And Jesus says the follower who does that is like salt that's lost its saltiness. It's not, it needs to be thrown out. I didn't know this until this week, but scientifically speaking, it's actually not possible for pure sodium chloride, pure salt, to lose its saltiness. But salt in Palestine, where Jesus was, the way they harvested salt was they would go by the tide pools of the Dead Sea, and as those dried up, they would evaporate. They would leave behind this mixture of salt and gypsum and carnalite, and that's what they would harvest as salt, but it was possible for in that process, in that slurry, for the salt crystals actually to dissolve. So you're left with something that looks like salt, but it doesn't have any of the properties left. It doesn't have the taste. It looks like salt, but then you go to use it and it doesn't do anything. And Jesus says, the follower who comes after him without counting the cost is like that. They look like a follower. But in the end, when it comes time to be used by God, they don't actually do anything. And Jesus says there are consequences for that. That that salt is thrown out. Multiple times, how many times did Jesus say in the passage, if this, if you don't do this, you cannot bear, cannot be my disciple. There are consequences to not following Jesus. So as costly as it is to follow him, it is even more costly to stop following him or to not follow him at all. What else can it mean when the salt is thrown out other than a reference to judgment? So which kind of salt are we? Perhaps you were sitting there this morning thinking, following Jesus, this, that sounds too costly. And it is. It will cost your whole life. But the irony is, in the long run, it will cost you far more not to follow him. Because in the end, having opposed yourself to him, you will lose everything. But if you follow him though it will cost you in the short term, you will gain everything in the long run because you will have life with Jesus forever. That's the decision before every person. Will you follow Jesus and open yourself up to the possibility of great loss in the short term, but infinite gain in the long term? Or will you hold on to short-term gains only to lose it all in the end? Do you remember the quote from Jim Elliot? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Why is it worth losing everything for Jesus? Because he is going to the cross. He was willing to lose everything to gain you. He is not calling you into anything to walk any path he has not walked before you. And on the other side is resurrection and life. Life with him everlasting. So as we go to the Lord's table this morning, let us remember what it cost Jesus to come for us. And let us be prepared to go out from this place to take up our cross and follow him, to count the cost and to know that it is worth it because he is worth it. Amen. Let me pray as we go to the table. Lord, these are hard words. And so we ask for what has been said this morning that is true, would you write it on our hearts? Would you give us hearts that long to know you and to follow you? Would you help us to hold with an open hand even those good things that you give us? Would you draw our hearts to you that you might be above all and that those things might find their proper place in enjoyment as a second to you? Would you help us to count the cost to follow you? Thank you, Jesus, that you considered the cost, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.